Have you ever made the mistake of thinking you're the only one in the room? Or, when you read the Scriptures, have you ever thought there are other lens through which we might consider the sacred text? Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. Today on the podcast, I'm uh, looking forward to you hearing my conversation with Stephanie Buchanan Crowder. She teaches at Chicago Theological Seminary, and what stirred me uh, to have a conversation with Stephanie is her book, When Mama Speaks. I can't tell you all the ways that uh, my memory bank was stirred, not just reading uh, her book, but also in our conversation together. I think you'll find it fascinating. For instance, I'm betting many of you don't know who Rizpah was. Now, you may know who Mephibosheth was, especially if you've read about King David's kindness, but you probably didn't know much about his mom. So, we ought to pay attention when mama speaks. Solomon said so. So, maybe it would be worth pressing that a little bit and saying, maybe when Stephanie Buchanan Crowder speaks, opening up the text to us through a different lens, we ought to listen. I think so. Hope you'll stay tuned and listen to the podcast. As always, we hope you find Pathological helpful. We really attempt to explore the intersections of life, faith, and thinking theologically, that is, thinking about God's activity in the world and in our lives, what that looks like, why it matters. And this podcast is a great illustration of all of that. We hope to be a resource for pastors, uh, lay leaders, And those who just, as some like to say, like to nerd out thinking about uh, things theologically. If you find this podcast helpful, do us a favor and share the podcast. Remember, you can subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. And uh, if you would do us a favor, uh, you help us get found, go over to iTunes and give us a rating. Uh, If you don't like a five-star, give us a four. Even more, if you would, log in and leave a review. It helps us get found. And people who might be looking for this sort of resource may happen onto this podcast and find it helpful. That's really the only reason we do this, aside from the fact that I really enjoy being stretched myself and remembering that there are more people in the room than just me. So without further uh, stalling, here's my conversation with Stephanie Crowder on her book, When Mama Speaks. Hey, thanks so much for taking time to uh, chat with me. Sure. I, I know uh, schedules are busy, and I imagine you got semester coming up in, I don't know, a couple weeks maybe? Yeah, yeah. Things are, are ramping up. Yeah, they are. Well, good. Uh, just a, a quick bit. I, I'm a pastor in Oklahoma. I pastor uh, Southern Baptist Church. I've been at this church 23 years. Mm-hmm. And um, I met Tripp. And I've had a long friendship with Tripp for now quite a while. And so I pay attention to who he listens to and reads and been to a couple of events he's had out in L.A. Okay. And that's where I got introduced to you. Okay. And, uh, and so um, I had been out there to an event that uh, I can't remember the title of it, but uh, uh, Dr. Barbara Holmes was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Dr. B, they called her. Sure. And, and, and she uh, gave a a powerful presentation and there was a gentleman sitting next to me who said, he's a, he's a white fellow. And he, he says, I need you to come to my church and say these things. And her reply was, no, you need to tell your people. Yeah. And so I kind of, from there took that, that, well, there's some things I'm learning mm-hmm. and some things I need to tell my people. So I've been p- trying to pay attention and right. I've got a, a developed a friendship with Adam Clark at, at Xavier. I don't know if you know Adam. Sure. And uh, and so I thought, man, here's another voice that is helping me kind of see things that uh, I've read about. Okay. And and I thought that uh, it'd be just fun. I've got uh, some mothers in my life. 
Okay. Obviously, my, my mom, pretty strong personality. And then, of course, my wife and I've got two daughters, both, both young both young mothers, two kids each. And so I've told them about your book. I told them they needed to read it. And uh, my youngest, I told her I was talking to you today, and she said, oh, I'm jealous. So, oh, my. Okay. So, uh, okay. Here you are. Well, one thing that was one thing that um, I thought might be helpful, especially uh, picking up that theme that, you know, kind of trying to help some people that I have an opportunity to influence, understand some of the dynamics that I think are currently at work in our culture. That is, I think there was a period of time where a lot of people thought we were further along than we are. Hmm. And then the current climate seems to indicate that maybe there's always been some things underneath that we've not paid attention to. So when I read um, your book, uh, when mother speaks, and I was always told to pay attention to my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, I I liked the um, intersection of you bringing to bear um, African American theology, uh, a womanist theology, and a feminist theology together. And I'm wondering, is that something that would be an illustration of? Um, let's see, if I get these words right, intersectionality or intersubjectivity. Well, let's start here. I I, I situate this particular work within the sort of framework of of womanism and womanist studies. Okay. um, Which, of course, is different um, from feminist studies. Um, For many people and their perspective, you you kind of have, yes, there was was feminist studies first, or they're perhaps more familiar with that. Um, But if we go back to Alice Walker um, and her book, In Search of Our Mother's Garden, where she talks what it means to be, you know, womanist and and womanish, um, if you will. And so that's kind of the, um, you know, the linguistic ancestor, if you will, of what we're terming as um, womanism or a womanist studies um, in in that regard. Walker did not have in in mind um, womanist thinking. Uh, She was just dealing with, you know, womanish. Um, if you will, and she does talk about spirit towards the end, but really around, let's say, the late 60s, early 70s, you had ways in which um, the dynamics and the tenor within biblical studies or religious studies was changing um, because you had more African Americans who were showing up in the in institutions of higher learning as far as religion were concerned. And so you had liberation theology with you know, Jane Cup, James Cone, you had Gustavo Gutierrez. And so ways in which the voice of those who had been marginalized were appearing in these academic frameworks. Um, feminist was, was there, but you had women is saying, well, okay, it's fine, we can talk about gender, and, but we also need to talk about race. And we also need to talk about class um, as well. And so I try to do this kind of um, tri-legged, tripartite approach of talking about race, um, class, and gender through the framework of of motherhood. So in that regard, that's kind of my approach into this idea of of womanist studies. Um, So it is not so much um, an intersectionality of feminism, but it is in many ways sort of questioning and challenging um, feminist feminism to say, well, what what about more class conversation? Mm-hmm. We definitely can't just discard race as well. Sure. Well, I think you do a great job. Uh, it's been a couple of months since I've read your books. I, you did a great job giving a lot of that background. I'm glad you fill that in, especially maybe it would encourage someone who, who of course, hasn't read your book, maybe to pick it up. And I'm certainly going to hope that uh, some of the two or three people that listen to my podcast um, will, Absolutely. you know, indeed pick it up because um, it, it does seem to um, uh, provide a, a means to understand that we all approach uh, the text, any text, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, particular influences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, you know, being an Anglo, being a white man, um, I'm unaware of those. I, I it, it, has, it is as though everybody or the assumption is, is, Everybody reads it the way I read it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there was just a wealth of um, illustrations as you were taking the stories from the scriptures and talking about uh, various women who we're familiar with in the Bible. And that was, that was, that was powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's, that's the whole point 
I think that there are a couple of things that, that you get at with, with your comment. Number one, you know, we don't read, we don't interpret, we don't approach life in a vacuum. There are familial experiences, geographical, there are economic experiences. Of course, there are politic, political experiences that influence, you know, how we broach any text, whether it's the Bible or whether it's a newspaper, whether it's an email. So we, we all read out of, I guess, stuff, if you will. So there, there are things that, that influences that shape and mold and craft how it is, in this case, how we read the biblical text. And so for me, it has been, well, saying, talking about what does it mean as a mother, as a mother of two sons, how does that shape, how does that inform, how does it tailor how I read the biblical text? And so the idea for me goes to the second point. So owning up to that, number one, we don't read in a vacuum. We don't interpret out of a vacuum. Number three, then how do then we recontextualize these biblical texts? So if these are texts that are you know, been written two or 3,000 years you know, earlier, how do we make them live, move, and have their being here and now? So the idea was not just to take the story of, of Hagar and Bathsheba and Rizpah and Zebedee's wife and Mary, just to, you know, situate them totally in their own historical context, but to say, well, what does all this mean here and now? So if we look at, you know, Samuel's take on Rizba, who's a concubine, who, you know, gets caught up in this kind of, you know, tribal, political, government warfare. You know, she's, she's not aware what's going on, but yet her sons pay the price of someone else's, you know, political shenanigans. There's always a victim. There are always victims, you know, and oftentimes there are innocent victims when we're talking about political shenanigans. You know, our healthcare debate has been an example of that. So I'll just go there. And so that's why I want to talk about the story of Rispa. So here it is, you know, there's a drought in the land, there's famine. She's not sure why. David, who's the king, doesn't know why. He comes to find out there's some unresolved issues from his predecessor. Again, all these political dynamics, all of this political drama that's going on. What do the Gibeonites want? Well, they want blood for blood. You know, Saul killed some of our people. Well, we want, you know, something in return. They want blood. They want bodies, if you will. So it ends up, Rizpah, you know, doesn't have a choice. Her sons are killed. Um, because again, something that she didn't have any control of, didn't know anything about, but yet she has to pay the price as a citizen for something that really goes farther up the line than she does. Um, so not only does she pay the price, but Mira pays the price too. So there are seven boys, seven men who are impelled, who are hanged because of Saul and some other unresolved political issues. How do we use Rispa's story to talk about, you know, the sacrifices of a mother? How do we use that story to talk about this idea? Well, this is one of your first die-ins. You know, we were talking about die-ins. There literally is a die-in. This is one that takes place for 90 days. Um, So for almost three months, she is hovering over these dead bodies. You know, the Bible says that, you know, she's trying to keep the birds of the air from them uh, during the day and the beasts from over those bodies at night. But this is sort of her vigil, her watch. Um, over these dead bodies, over these sons. Well, we've seen that. If you look mm-hmm. at, you know, Sabrina Fulton, Trayvon Martin's mother, if you look at um, Leslie McSpadden, uh, Michael Brown's mother, if, if you look at Lucia McBath. So these are modern day stories, these mothers of the movement, um, Gloria Ville Reed, Sandra Bland's mother, who mourn publicly, who grieve publicly. So that whisper story is just one way of trying to make um, this biblical text live and have some current contextual relevance. Yeah, and you, you do a beautiful job of drawing that out nearly at every turn with the different nuances in the different stories, because a lot of times we don't, you know, what we're looking for, at least we preachers types tend to look for, okay, so what's a particular individualistic application? So mm-hmm. we don't tend to look beyond that to, say, a system or a, a political movement and we kind of we kind of are forcing a particular read that that sometimes eclipses the very subversive nature of these stories even being included in a text that's generally all about men. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, part of it is it's it, it, it's patriarchy. That's <laughs> in right. Yeah. That's right. 
we're, got, we're reading a text that is um, latent, that is quote unquote pregnant with patriarchy, if you yeah. will. And I think still in this day, when so many of our congregations are led by men, and you're you're Southern Baptist, and mm-hmm. you know I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, so I know all about Bellevue Baptist Church. <laughs> yes. and, Drive by those big three crosses right in front, you know, so <laughs> right, right. know a little bit of, of your denominational context. Um, so, so much of it is patriarchy. Again, you know, we tend to read and select texts out of who we are. Um, one of the, the things that sort of, you know, sparked the book for me is that, well, you know, as a quote, lady preacher, well, you know, I wanted to preach texts about women. Yeah. And then when I started having children, I said, well, what are ways in which the Bible talks about motherhood? Um, so again, it was out of my own experiences, out of my own kind of living that encouraged me to, to dig and to mine the biblical text a little more. Well, I, I, I know you gave, um, you know, some background, but this is the first time I've ever seen an emphasis on motherhood the way you bring it out. Mm-hmm. You know, you get the, uh, if I can say it this way, that the, the tip of the hat reference in Proverbs 31, you know, her children rise up and call yeah. her blessed. And so we have the machinations about what all that means. And then we superimpose onto that text, mm-hmm. whatever best vision we think will help women be what we want them to be. Yeah. But, but, in, but you actually, uh, like with the story of Rispa, and I really was fascinated with what you did with Bathsheba. Mm-hmm. Um, because there is a silent period um, uh, between the, our, our introduction to her and then her, her later life. And, and you draw out something that I confess, I never, ever had any notion to look for. Sure. And, and so the value of looking at it from that lens, I, I don't know if, if uh, maybe I'm asking, like, where did, aside from your own experience, was there any other influences that developed that? Well, I think number one, it perhaps it's my own sense of jadedness. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I try to look at, you know, what are the what are the hard, difficult, what are those edgy, sandpapery kinds of perspectives? Uh, because yeah, you get the woo 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 Proverbs thirty one, and it's really an exhausting chapter. Actually, my yes. gosh, poor yes. woman in Proverbs thirty one. But I think anyone, you know, who who really understands motherhood realizes it is hard, it is difficult, it's messy, uh, you're trying to balance and and keep and juggle all the balls and you end up dropping balls and, you know, one day and you pick up some the other day and you drop some more and it's it's messy and and it's icky. And so I just want it to be to be honest and, you know, just talk about that. Well, yeah, here's Bathsheba, and here's another way of looking at this woman who we often deem as the victim, but she's really not the victim because it's David who abuses his power, mm-hmm. not Bathsheba, and he will initially meet her. Um, but yet in this story, I think she recreates herself, mm-hmm. um, and, that, um, and it, it, that it is Nathan who says, you know, something is about to go down, and we need to fix it. And basically, pleading with Bathsheba, I need your help in fixing this. There's the prophet saying that he needs the queen mother's help, um, or soon to be queen mother's help um, in this regard. And so it's it's a story in which Bathsheba recreates her own narrative. And yes, there have been things that have happened to us or things that we've done, but that doesn't have to be the last chapter, you know, the last line of our story. And so I think Bathsheba's take is, is one way of our reframing and restructuring and helping to revision our own lives. Yes, there's some missteps and there's hiccups and things happen to us. But that doesn't have to be um, the last word. And so she calls David on it. She says, you know, you made a promise. Somewhere there's a promise made. We don't have any biblical record of the promise. Right. Um, but somewhere, somehow, 20 years prior, there was a promise and, you know, David, you know, says, yeah, you're right. This is what needs to happen. And we, we go on into the second season. And there it is that Solomon eventually becomes um, 
becomes takes becomes king takes the throne and so what are ways in which you know mothers now tend to to to, to, na- to negotiate and and tend to have this degree of mediation and kind of in your face presence mm-hmm. um, when it comes to their children you know we can knock Whitney Houston all that we want to right. um, but you know she had the sense enough the the fiscal wherewithal to leave her money you know to her late child um um, and so what are ways in which we find mothers like Ursula Burns, who is, you know, the big guru at, at Xerox, who even talks about the challenges that she faced as a mother. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, there are these kind of public images and ways in which women as mothers are moving and shaking and negotiating. But at some time, that, you know, realizing that, yeah, we, we dropped the ball and we have some missteps. Um, but yet there, there's a gift, there's a power, there's a prowess um, that really enables us, I think, to, to recreate and reframe our own narratives. Yeah. And you when you uh, described um, uh, that it's work and it's messy, you give a lot of attention to the work. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and two things that come to mind is you you um, emphasize um, uh, a, a broader a sense of mothering. Mm-hmm. or mothering the other, and and that is a, a form of work. And then I believe, if I remember correctly, you actually, um, I was looking for it in my notes, um, you remarked that that work is is spiritual. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you, you look at what, what Rizba does. Um, again, there are seven boys who are impaled. Five of them are not hers. <laughs> right. Um, and... We don't know where Mirab was. We don't know what conversation um, they had. Uh, Mirab was, you know, Saul's daughter. Rispa was just a concubine. And there's conversation, you know, as a second wife, what authority she has, which I take, you know, I don't think she had that much authority. Um, but Rispa, yes, becomes this other mother um, for these five children. Um, and so I think there there is a way in which we tend to do that. If we see, you know, a, a child going astray or there's something wrong, yeah, we'll tend to coddle and do what we can, you know, to help in that regard. There, there's this kind of sister-motherly community, um, mm-hmm. I think, that, that that tends to happen. Um, I remember it happening more so, you know, when I was younger. There's, there are reservations about it now because, you know, we're not so sure, you know, what the responses will be. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but I, I do know that in our own congregation, if there's something going on, yeah, people will tend to to, to coddle and to rescue and, and to nurture that child. Um, even in our congregation, there are women and there, there are older women who tend to, to nurture my own children. And mm-hmm. I think they need that. So there is this idea of neighborhood mothers and, and community mothers. And if, even if you think of these activists, you know, like Ida B. Wells and, and Mary Church Terrell, Fannie Lou Hamer, um, although Fannie Lou Hamer was not a mother, the other two, they were actually mothers, but the community became their children. So, you know, for Mary Church Terrell and for Ida B. Wells, it was this idea of this larger community. And what are the ways in which as mothers, they can sort of change the landscape and nurture the, the children, if you will, in their set communities. You know, I have to confess that um, as I'm reading that, section and then hearing you re-describe it um i i couldn't help but think of my own mother my 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 mother worked with youth while i was growing up when i was a small child she worked with youth well she still does indirectly but for about 40 50 years and when i thought of of uh, of her as you were uh, describing uh mothering the other it dawned on me that if we pay attention and emphasize that a little bit better, um, the rest of us might have an appreciation for the other that is missed. Mm-hmm. In other words, right there in front of us, rather than other the other, mm-hmm. we actually have in front of us a already kind of wired um, nature mm-hmm. to be available to the other that are not theirs. We my mother cared for so many other young people that that i i didn't pay attention to it in the way i i uh, reflected on it as i'm reading you describe that and i thought boy if we could kind of recover a little bit of that because then as you describe it even in our own congregation that happens and rather than trying to go out and say well you know 
when we're talking about this particular group of people or that particular uh, marginalized group, let's figure out how not to other them. We've got ready-made illustrations of what that looks like already within our community that says, now here's a better illustration of what I'm talking about instead of trying to create sort of an idea for someone to latch onto. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was incredibly, incredibly uh, helpful for me personally to go back as a pastor and think, why not play up the wealth of that? Mm-hmm. You know, play up the wealth of that in the congregation that says, already we've been gifted with this um, um, understanding of how to treat the other and how to share that um, a- across whatever lines we generally draw. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that there are a couple of points. I think number one, for, you know, many mothers don't see an other. You know, it becomes this is a child, yes, a yes. Person. You know, this is someone who who just needs a hug or, or tissue or who just needs some attention. Um, yes. So, for many of us mothers, we, we don't tend to use the othering language. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to be careful, even with the language that that mm. we. Um, I think a, a second point, point um, to that is. You know, what, what are the ways in which is, if we're talking about this idea of, of mothering and, and community, you know, how do we um, sort of extend the, the conversation so that we all see that either, you know, we're all in jeopardy or the end or we're all going to benefit? Mm-hmm. Um, because the, the Black Lives Matter movement that started after Michael Brown's killing was started by um, women who were not related to Michael Brown. (laughs) Right, right. It wasn't started by, you know, Leslie McSpadden, um, but it was started by, you know, three women, three three gay women who felt we need to respond. This is happening too much. This is happening too often. Um, So how do, and that leads to my third point, that it's it's not just mothers, but if you are a dad, if you are an aunt, if you are an uncle, if you are a single person, there is a buy-in, and there has to be a connection, mm-hmm. a buy-in to the community itself, because you're a human being, or you live in this community, or you, you're a child of the divine. That and we are all called to love and to support and mm-hmm. to you know to enact you know mercy and to stand in and, and and to stand in for people so that everyone has justice, so that righteousness rules and reign. Um, yeah, you know, for me, it's through the lens of motherhood, but for many, you know, it can be through the lens of fatherhood or just through the lens of I'm a human being, and there's there's divinity and all of humanity and what. I'm connected to you because we are all created um, from this divine being, however we name this divine being. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I the other, the other uh, that you just described so well that it, uh, came to mind when I'm kind of thinking through that as well is as a pastor, I've watched how others have um, taken in my own children. As you described it, you know, with your sons, I, I watched when they were small and and then we had a, um, an overwhelming sense of confidence that that um, that there were those who we could trust. There, there, there were those who were looking out with us, not not for us, but with us. And and that just strengthened some bonds of what those relationships had already kind of felt like in a way that can't really be experienced. I don't think without that investment, without that investment. Oh, absolutely. And I think that that's a part of, again, what we get with the whole Grisba story. You also get this kind of, um, you know, sister motherling uh, connection with, with Mary and, and, and Elizabeth. Yes. You know, so you have Mary who's young, trying to figure this out, is scared. You have Elizabeth who's, you know, just as newly pregnant, but she's not old, she's not as young as Mary. So there's a little more experience there. But what are the ways that Elizabeth uses, you know, her at least her womanly experience to help this teenager who's trying to wrestle with what it's now going to mean for her to be a mother? So, you know, Mary has to, to yield, has mm-hmm. to be willing mm-hmm. to say that I need help. Right. And Elizabeth has to be available and to be willing to yield and to give herself of that. So, it, you know, it, it's this kind of ongoing, it's a fluid conversation that, that has to have that I think, you know, younger women have to say, you know, I need help. Mm-hmm. Um, and so often, you know, what my friend Shaniqua Barnes always talked about this 
one word, strong black woman, <laughs> but sometimes we're not so strong. And it right. ain't be, you know, strong white woman or strong Latino woman. Sometimes we just need help. Um, sure. We don't know. And we're just trying to figure it out. And we just need someone who's been there and done that and who's experienced this to say, you know what, you'll get over this, or this is how I work through this. Um, so it is a matter of our being willing to say, hey, I need some help over here. And I'm being willing to, to love and to mentor and, and to nurture people who do need help. Well, do you think that in, in any way, um, as, as you've taken these stories in, in your book, that, that you're, well, I think so, but I want your opinion, I, that you're actually helping to subvert the idea that is out there that you ought, you ought to be able to do it. You don't need help. I mean, our, our culture tends to have an air about it that, you know, there's something wrong with you if you can't do it. You know, I know, I know, you know, my daughters, when they had their second child, were, of course, overwhelmed because I got used to one and now I'm now two and getting ready takes more. And I've got uh, uh, my allegiance and attention is now split and one needs one thing in one moment, and one another. And, and there's a uh, internal or in our conversations, there's been an internal struggle where they felt like, well, I'm just not doing very good job at this. And I think that that's a, a, a cultural bias that, that, that doesn't allow us uh, the room or space to say, you know what? Uh, I do need help. And the way you tell these stories actually have a subversive feature. It seems that are trying to chip away at, uh, what keeps us from that sort of community and that sort of kind of interdependence? Well, I think, you know, there, there are aspects. I think definitely if you look at the Mary Elizabeth story, you get that sense. And even with the story of um, James and John's mother, uh, mm-hmm. Mrs. Deputy, you know, she, she doesn't have any, you know, qualms asking Jesus for a piece of whatever his kingdom is going to be. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think for her, it is a matter of, I want my children to be secure. And there are ways in which, you know, mothers, fathers, parents, you know, we'll, we'll do whatever it takes um, so that our, our children will have what they need to, to, nourish, to nourish and, and to thrive and, and to survive. Um, I, I think also, I think social media, you know, it sort of creates mm-hmm. this, you are wonderful, you are great. And, and we create those images ourselves. You know, our Facebook pages are, you know, they rarely show us broke up, toe up, or, toe down, or torn down. <laughs> you know, we're always happy and we're on the beach and, you know, we were in the mountains. And, oh, look at this picture. You know, it's a picture post, you know, the family argument. You know, it's the picture, you know, after you've had this falling out of, and so, but we, we tend not to show the sort of dirty and, and the, the muck and the muddy behind the scenes stuff, you know, unless we know that, you know, there's been a death in the family, but, you know, our Facebook pages, our Instagram, Pinterest, and, and Twitter, it's always the woo-woo-woo, oh, everything is wonderful. So I think social, social media, you know, and, and what we project onto social media, you know, create <laughs> um, all these great, wonderful images. Um, but, but in many ways, you know, if we could post, you know, what was life like, you know, trying to get the kids ready for school or the, what the argument was over dinner or the argument in the car, you know, post that. <laughs> And see, you know, and you'll probably get even more likes. That's right. <laughs> because there are people that could perhaps, yeah, relate to that. Um, but it, it, it's, it's vulnerability. You know, yes. I, uh, Brene yes. Brown talks about that in, in her TED Talk, this whole idea of being vulnerable. Yes. And we don't want to. We don't want to show the scars and, you know, show the piercings in our side. Because there is so much, you know, that tends to um, force us and conscript us to project the positive. And I think particularly with, with mothering. Um, but I think, we, you know, we have to be honest that, yeah. you know, um, like Mrs. Zebedee, we'll, we'll cut some throats when it comes to, you know, getting more playing time or getting them on the field or getting the, our children the best. We are like Bathsheba. You know, we will hold people accountable. Um, for what they have told us. And there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, we are like Rispa. You know, we are broken and we are torn and some, we are the victim. We are caught as crossfire in some drama and some dynamics that have nothing whatsoever to do with us. And yeah, we're like Hagar. That what, what do you mean I have to go back and, and yield and submit 
you know, to Abraham and to Sarah. Well, they were mean and they kicked me out the first time. God, what do you mean go back, you know, to this job or go back to this relationship or start over um, again? So I think that's what I was trying to say that it's, we are not monolithic. Motherhood is not monochromatic, uh, but there's a lot of gray. There's a lot of black. There's some mud. There's some blood. Yes, there's some sunshine, but there are many thunderstorms and, and tornadoes um, as well. But just trying to be open and honest and trying to connect with people wherever they are. Yeah, when you were when you were describing a um, fight for your child, I, my oldest grandson, seven today, he's in the other office, and and he was born premature. He was less than three pounds, and his mother had to learn that if she was going to get what he needed, she had to just quit worrying about what someone was going to think, but she was going to fight, and so she would call pharmaceutical companies, she would call hospitals and insurance companies. And when he started school, when she felt like that, that was, there was a little bit of neglect uh, in maybe his particular needs, she was on the phone. And, and I, and I think you're right. You, you have to, you have to look for those modern day illustrations. I'm going to do what it takes. I, 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 I wanted to, um, you know, we've talked about the named women, but you include an unnamed woman. The Canaanite woman. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and 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 so you had some interesting things um, when you were you were describing um, uh, the, the fact that she didn't have a name. She's merely a woman who comes out and starts shouting at Jesus, or a loose street dog who would not stop barking. Boy, that yeah. just is image rich right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the the part of it is it's it's the nameless piece. And I say that because there are so many models of motherhood that, and so many mothers of the movement whose names we don't know. Mm -hmm. So I think perhaps long before there was Trayvon Martin or Michael Brown or Rakia or Renisha McBride or Sandra Bland, there were many other mothers who said, well, that was my story, but we will never know their names. Um, you know, we, we have people will talk about Beyonce and the Beehive all <laughs> But what about, you know, your everyday mother next door who's making it happen, right. you know, for her child? Um, we'll talk about, you know, Whitney Houston and her struggles. But there, there are many other mothers who are struggling. You know, this past May, there was a group who was, their task was to pay for mothers who were incarcerated. So what about mothers, yeah, who have no choice but to spend Mother's Day and many Mother's Days and many, many birthdays who don't get the privilege of being with their sons or grandsons on birthdays but are behind bars. So, yeah, these are some of the, the nameless, you know, women um, that I think we have to lift. Um, you know, those of us who work in the academy, I mean, yeah, we, we have the privilege of, of working in the, in the academy. But what about the women at the daycare take care mm-hmm. of our children? while we work here? What about the women who come and clean our offices when we go away? Um, you know, if there's a cafeteria, what about the women who work, those mothers who work in these cafeteria? So that was one way in which I was trying to help us to um, keep in mind these nameless women. I love the story of the Canaanite woman because number one, she bests Jesus. She verbally bests Jesus. I mean, and yes, there is there is self-deprecation and, and defamation, but sh- and she says, you know, say to me what you want. I just want my daughter healed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also love this story because we don't have many biblical texts where there is someone intervening on behalf of a daughter, right. and the daughter is healed. Um, so it, it, it's those two nuances in the fact that when Jesus goes into this territory of of, of Tyre and Sidon, he is really the minority here. Um, He is the one who's really racially and ethnically, we're talking about other, you know, the outsider, if you will. So she's basically at home. This is her home turf, her home territory, but her hands are tied because no one has been able to do anything for her daughter. And so she engages in what I call proskuneo posturing and that she bows and beds and pleads for the sake of her daughter. So she said, fine, I will put 
you know, the racial and ethnic, you know, kind of up, up and up to the side for now, if it will mean that you'll do something for my daughter. And yeah. Then, yeah, go ahead. Well, and, and I think, I think from that, when, when you remark that um, the way the text refers to her, so she was in her hometown, Jesus was, you know, the minority in, in the story, but that she was referred to not named, but as a Canaanite, Mm-hmm. carries with it a particular um, import in the text. I yeah. think you say is to mark her as one who must be invaded, conquered, annihilated. Yeah. She must survive only as a colonized mind, a subjugated and domesticated subject. Well, you, you pick up something that you don't hear in, uh, you know, Sunday school or in most sermons. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the idea was that, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful play on words. So it's, it's the Canaanite, so how do we go back to then? You know, what does God promise, you know, you know, Abraham and that he's going to have, you know, all these this blessings and, you know, as many as, as the, you can count with the sand and the land. And he's, he declares that the Hittites, the Amorites, Canaanites, all these other ites, they're going to be decimated so that you can have this promised land. So, yes, it was to, to conjure, if you will, this idea that, oh, remember these people. We had to conquer them. We had to get rid of them. So there's that kind of, you know, racial and ethnic nomenclature conjuring that, you know, that's going on. But it's also a play on words because you think of Canaanite and Kanyari and the whole sort of play on words with her being a dog and, you know, an underling. Um, as well. So those is kind of racial and ethnic, as well as a kind of sociological, maybe even animalistic um, mm. kind of conjuring that's going on. That perhaps she's not even a human being. That uh, she's, she's, yeah, definitely decentered, marginalized on many levels. Yeah, and I think that when you draw that out the way you do, that, that's why I, I uh, come back to the fact that for some of us who wouldn't have, say, that familiar theological, philosophical kind of uh, lens to look through opens up for us a means to see the text in a, in a greater subversive sort of way so that when it comes time to say to my people, like what Barbara Holmes says, here is a text that now you take and say, look, it's right there. you right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But we have to dig deeper. And yes. you know, we, we have to, like you're doing, we have to be willing to engage resources that will take us into, you know, a, a different part of the biblical room. That's right. <laughs> um, so I think that that's a part of it. And, you know, it, it's being, a, being willing to read other people, other people's stories yeah. uh, and, and being willing to say, you know, even in this patriarchal context, what are ways in which people were trying to negotiate their own power? Mm. Uh, so the woman calls Jesus Lord, calls him Lord on several times. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matthew makes it very clear, the proskuneo, that she is bowing, she is groveling, mm-hmm. you know, that, that there is really, you know, perhaps not even holding her head up, you know, in, in this regard. But, you know, she's willing to do whatever it takes. So part of it is understanding the, the, the imperial context mm-hmm. um, of our biblical text, being willing to understand that it is a, a setting of, of domination. It's empire. You know, it's mm-hmm. Roman empire. There's a lot of cupidity and mendacity. You know, there's a lot of, you know, dogfighting going on. Um, a lot of sort of, you know, male scratching and, and wrestling that's happening. And what are ways in which women and children, you know, get caught up in that? Yes. Um, and so here's a woman, a mother who learns how to navigate and to negotiate, again, for the sake of her daughter. And one of the few places, and perhaps the only place where you have, Jesus says, you know what? I can't say anything else. Right. You win. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that it's it's just you know um, opened up in that register. It 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 just adds something to the story that generally I think gets glossed, mm-hmm. you know, as we treat it. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to turn from 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 not away from the book, but but now to your work. And so I noticed when I was reading, you know, kind of um, what what you do there at at Chicago Seminary that you're um, you're involved with theological field education and the director of field education. Now, 
I know what that meant when I was in seminary a hundred years ago. So I'm assuming that there is, um, there, there is, as you teach and, and those that you supervise in field education that is out there doing the work that you have just quite a wealth of, um, uh, not just own your own personal illustrations that you've drawn from, not the history particularities of those you've said were kind of the forerunners in the movement. And then those who've currently picked up kind of the ones we're more familiar with today, but you've got students, I'm assuming who enliven these things in fresh ways too. Well, I think, you know, the, the, the idea of seminary has changed tremendously, you know, from when I was in seminary 20 years ago. So for many of us in seminary, you know, we were fresh out of college. Mm-hmm. And so you got your undergrad, then you went straight to seminary. That has changed. Yes. And so, you know, with the success of our online program, I mean, we're seeing people who have, you know, this is their second, perhaps third career. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, men and women who have adult children and have grandchildren mm-hmm. um, and who are not in a position to quit their jobs and move to Chicago to come to seminary, you know, which is what, what I did. I, you know, straight out of grads, undergrad, moved to Dayton, Ohio, went to seminary. People don't do that too much right. anymore. Right. Um, and so how do we make um, these resources available, accessible, almost what I do with the book? How do we take what's mm-hmm. in the Bible, make it accessible? Mm-hmm. How do we take this theological education and make it assess- accessible um, to people just depending on what their own situation and, and where they are? And so we try to find ways you know, to help students, regardless of where they are on the path, to you know, find practical experiences that will speak to what they believe that the divine is calling them to do. You know, what is God calling them to do? You know, we have Buddhist students and, and Hindu students and students who are secular humanists, um, but who still sense this, this call on this life, that there's something more um, that they are, they, they are to do. So what are ways in which, you know, even in this class that I teach, I try to introduce students to many voices. So not just um, Christian voices, not just, you know, African-American voices or white male voices, but how do we have a conversation about other religious traditions? And what can we learn from those religious traditions in our effort to learn more about serving and leading and ministering? Oh. So then field education really is distance learning kind of stuff? Is that what you're kind of involved well, in? Well, you know, it's, it's really, so I say it is that it's getting out of the walls of the classroom. Okay. And so if, you know, if you're studying theology and church history and Bible in the classroom, well, how do you take that theology and Mm. make it have hands out Mm. in the real world? Mm. How do you take that church history so that it has feet um, in the real world? So how do you take these biblical stories so that they show you what it's like to love and to share in the real world? So it's it's practical experience. Students are either serving in a congregation, whether that's a temple, a mosque, or or, uh, a church, or they're serving in social service agencies. So how do you take all this theory, and how does that theory meet praxis? So that's basically what's happening with field education. So that when students leave, they can say, well, you know, I know what it's like, you know, to feed the hungry, or I know what it's like to lead a protest, or I know what it's like to, you know, work with an organization in, in community building and community mobilization, or to work with an after-school program. So we want to make sure that when students leave, they've had some boots-on-the-ground, hands-on experience. Yeah. That's really the heart, the core of theological field education. Oh, good, good. Well, um, those students have uh, a very... Uh, a bright resource to help think that way. And, and, and uh, it's, it shows up in the way you draw those lines in your book. And I, and I just, I, it was intriguing to me how that role fit in relationship to really kind of what your passion was in making those connections in your writing. And, and obviously this will spur me to kind of consider some other things you've written, but boy, this is, this has been a, a gem as far as I'm concerned to uh, open up to, to think about um, not just these stories, but the things behind the stories in ways yes. that I, I hadn't. And so I'm very appreciative that you had the time, took the time and the energy to put that together for uh, the church, for us. 
Absolutely. It, it was my pleasure. I, I'm very grateful. Thank you for an, engaging the work and for allowing us to reschedule. And so I, I'm grateful for that. And, you know, I just, it's all about, I mean, yes, there, there's this training and all this, this effort that goes into getting a PhD, but I don't think it means anything unless you can sort of use the work and to translate what you're doing to help somebody else, to help somebody else think about their own lives, to help us as a community mm-hmm. to think about, you know, each other and the gifts that we bring and ways in which we can nurture and support it and help each other. So it, it's about making connections. And so, how can I use what I've done to connect with other people so that they can connect with someone else? Well, I can say you've accomplished that in this book. Uh, well, and and, uh, and I, I, uh, I value your time. I know you're busy. Right. Um, I'll, I'll keep looking out for what you're doing. And, and again, I can't say thank you enough for taking the time. And, and I miss your busy schedule, Stephanie, but it's been a joy. It's been my pleasure. I'm very grateful. Thank you so much. Go spend some good happy birthday time with that grandson. <laughs> I'm going to. Thanks right. very much. You have a good day. Sure. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And we'll run out and get a copy of When Mama Speaks by Stephanie Buchanan Crowder. If you happen to be interested in a few other podcasts that run along the same trajectory as Telling My People, that is some other lens through which we could consider um, the text, theology, God's activity in the world, our response to it. Um, look for my podcast with uh, Adam Clark. Uh, had a had a great conversation uh, with Adam, and uh, it was is really really helpful. And we'll try to keep uh, offering uh, a few of those along the way because there's more people in the room than just. Uh, us, or you, or me. So, as always, this has been Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. Just a reminder again, share the podcast. Uh, If you found it helpful, leave us a review and rating, and uh, remember to subscribe. You can go to the website, toddlittleton.net or pathological.com, and you can subscribe to uh, my newsletter, And that way you'll always know, get it right there in your inbox when a post or podcast drops. And uh, that'd be another way you could share this as a resource by email with uh, your friends and those you think would find it helpful. So until next time, this has been Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. Peace.